Welcome to On the Spot with Melinda Garvey, the On the Dot interview series where we sit down with some of the most intriguing and interesting women to watch featured in our daily email newsletter and podcast, Four Minutes with On the Dot. Make sure to hit the subscribe button so you don't miss a single episode of On the Spot, now available every Thursday on your favorite podcast streaming services. This week, I sit down with Leslie Morgan, feminist author and female sexuality advocate. Without further ado, let's start the show. Welcome everyone to On the Spot. I'm your host, Melinda Garvey, and super excited to have you here. As you all know, On the Dot's mission is to empower women through access to incredible role models. And we bring them to you every day with our daily newsletter and podcast. And we also bring them to you every week in a long form version with On The Spot. So we're super excited to have with us another wonderful role model, Leslie Morgan. She is a New York Times bestselling author and speaker. Welcome, Leslie, we're happy to have you here. Thank you, Melinda, it's so great to be here. I like to kind of go back, like way back. Like when you were growing up, what was your big dream? What did you sort of think you wanted to be or do? Tell us your story. How did you get to where you are today? I grew up in Washington, D.C., and my mom was a teacher and my dad was a lawyer. And our family was pretty chaotic, like in a wonderful way. There were pets everywhere and everybody played a lot of sports. And my parents were really into education. And I was like a very shy, kind of nerdy little girl, incredibly feminine. I loved like wearing beautiful little dresses and Um, I could hardly talk to anybody. And all I wanted to be when I was little was a writer. And even before I could read, I used to write fake books, like scribble them and staple them together and show them to my parents. And it's what I wanted. It's amazing to me looking back now that when I was three years old, I already knew what I wanted to do. Wow. Um, I'm pretty amazed by it. And of course, just like all women, my path has been, there's been nothing linear about it. I started out as a writer, my first job out of college. And then I got frustrated with that. I thought it was, the pay was too low and there was so much sexism against women. And so I went and got an MBA from Wharton Business School. And, you know, I had a successful corporate career that I loved. And then I went back to writing again as a way to combine work and family. You know, I had three kids and I needed more flexibility for my job. And I decided to go back to my first love writing, not so much because I loved it, but because I knew it would be really flexible. Right. And then it worked out wonderfully. And this is, I've just published my fourth book and it's, it's crazy and wonderful. And I feel lucky. And also like I was incredibly persistent in going after this. Let's go back to that first job. Was that the one that was at 17 Magazine? Yes. When I saw you work, I was like, wow, what that must've been like. Because I think we're, we're probably around the same age and I'm like, okay, we were totally, you know, doing that 17 Magazine at the same time. So tell us about that though. I hear it is a magazine about young women and then you talk about the sexism that was happening within the building within the working structure and i just love to hear about that because that's a juxtaposition about what the magazine was supposed to represent right i know welcome to real life i had just graduated from harvard and i too i was convinced that it was the best job that you could possibly have on the planet (laughs) and i loved it i loved going to work every day i loved the magazine i loved teenage girls and there were a few people who had never read 17 who made fun of it who just you know, thought they were, of course, they were all men. Oh, it's just a book about how to put on lipstick. And anybody who thinks that has never talked to a teenage girl. Mm-hmm. Teenage girls are dealing with such gravitas, you know, when to have sex, 
does a boy just want to use them? Do, do they use birth control if they're having sex? Where do they get birth control? What do they do if, you know, an older man, including a family member, you know, is trying to abuse them? Teenage girls deal with very big issues. And I was honored and thrilled to be one of their advisors, which is what you are when you're a writer and editor at Seventeen Magazine. And I had very recently been a teenage girl dealing with all that stuff. So it was very fresh to me. So it was a really wonderful, challenging, terrific job. And there were 49 women who worked there and one man. So it was a very pro-female place. And 17 itself wasn't sexist at all. But the greater world that I worked in was because it was a pink collar ghetto, as magazine publishing was, and in some ways still is. I made about a fifth of what my male colleagues from Harvard made in investment banking. And it was not a livable wage. And I I just didn't like it. I knew I couldn't take care of myself on that salary. I could never take care of children or my parents if they needed me when they got older. And I just thought I've got to find a way that pays in a more lucrative fashion, even though I loved the work. And so that's what led me to go to business school. I don't have any regrets about it, but it was very sad to leave that world behind because it was fun and it was really challenging, wonderful work. And it was so pro-female that it fed me in lots of different ways, but just... (laughs) Not in terms of putting a roof over my head and uh, eating food. Which is good, right? We like this. Right. It was important. You just finished your fourth book, you said. And I know that you wrote a book about sort of your experience with domestic violence. That's what got you on the bestseller list and really got a lot of acclaim for what you were talking about. I actually watched your TED Talk called Crazy Love. And just like for you to kind of talk about that and why you did it and, and thinking about, you know, not only what women are putting up with at home, but certainly in the midst of this Me Too movement that's happening and being uncovered around corporate America. What kind of impact did you hope to make and by telling your story? Well, my subject in everything that I write and all of the speeches that I give, everything, it's all about women. My entire life has been studying and writing about women. And given that I am a woman myself, I have used my books, my memoirs, to first to explain myself to myself. Writing can be very therapeutic in that way. But then also to try to make a bigger point to other women and to our society overall. And what got me to write Crazy Love, my memoir about domestic violence, and also to do the TED Talk on the same subject, on on why victims stay, is rooted in that time that we were just talking about when I was at 17, because I hadn't dated much in college, and I started to date when I was living in New York, working at 17. And one of the men I met there was this amazingly smart, wonderful, interesting investment banker who adored me, and I ended up marrying him. And he had been terribly physically abused as a child. And I didn't know what I was walking into. And five days before our wedding, he started abusing me. He strangled me five days before our wedding. When I got married to him, I had 10 faded bruises on my neck from him trying to kill me. And I married him anyway. And then it took years to realize what I had done and what he was capable of. And that even though I loved him and he loved me, he was going to kill me if I stayed. And I didn't know I was a victim of domestic violence. That's how strong my denial was. And so when I started to write Crazy Love, after I left him, after the divorce was over, after I'd actually remarried my second husband and had my second child with him, I was so compelled to try to explain this to myself and to other people. And what I heard a lot at the time is what you still hear, which is people would say to me, you know, well, why doesn't she just leave? And it's such a naive and frankly, deeply insulting question. Because it implies that we victims wanted to stay or had a choice about staying. And nobody ever asked me, ever, why did your husband do that to you? 
Nobody asks about the men and why they do this. And so my book was born out of anger and frustration and wanting to explain domestic violence to other people. And I thought the best form was a memoir to just really try to take people on that journey with me, to try to make you feel what it was like to fall in love with and marry and then ultimately leave a very damaged but very compelling person. And it's an experience that millions of people have had, both men and women, because men are abused too, emotionally in particular, but sometimes physically too. So that was the book of all the books that I've written about women. It's the one that did the best in terms of sales and putting me on the New York Times bestseller list. And it was published 10 years ago, but it still sells very well because I think I tapped into something that people were very curious about, but nobody understood. And it's a really empowering book because it shows that it's not a victim's fault. It has nothing to do with intelligence or self-esteem. It's a really complicated psychological, physical, and financial trap that a lot of people fall into without realizing that that's what's happening. They think they're just falling in love. Well, and the, the interesting thing about everything that you're saying, you're hearing so many of these same descriptions, I guess, when it comes to the Me Too movement about women not being believed and not having the confidence to leave and, you know, the financial need and being asked the same question, well, why didn't you just quit your job? And we shouldn't have put up with that. Right. You know, it's very interesting, just some of those parallels and what's happening. It's frankly, it's a way to blame the victim. By asking, why didn't you just leave? Or why didn't you just quit? Or why didn't you scream louder? It's a way of saying it was your fault. And I don't think that people really intentionally mean to blame victims. I just think it's the way our society is set up, that it's much less unsettling to our societal structure to blame the female victim in these cases. And thank God for the Me Too movement, because it just shows what strength there is in telling the truth and the strength of numbers. So many women had the exact same story about what had happened to them, that it was undeniable. I think there's no better time to be a woman in our country and in our culture than right now, even though there's still a whole lot of work to be done on every single front, legally, politically, in terms of education, everything. But women are really strong and tough. We're fighting this and we're dismantling the sexism and the patriarchy that has really dominated our society. And I firmly believe that this is not only good for women, but that it's tremendously good for men too, because men suffer from all of this as well. What kind of advice would you give to women who are either in a domestic violence situation or in a Me Too situation at their workplace? What are some steps that they can take to start the process? If you are a victim yourself, the most important thing that you can do is to find somebody you trust and confide in them. That's how this process starts. Abuse thrives only in silence. And so by staying quiet, you are ensuring that the abuse will be able to continue. But you need to pick somebody who you trust so that they believe you and so they can help you brainstorm about how to change it. And you can't change it overnight. It takes a really long time. In the case of domestic violence, it takes victims an average of seven attempts to leave before they can actually leave. And I don't have the data on sexual harassment at work or sexual assault or other kinds of abuse, but I imagine it's similar. So it takes a while and you need a friend in order to get out of that. So that's the first thing I would do. That's the key that unlocks every door is to tell somebody about it. Now, if you are a bystander, if you think somebody you know and care about, whether at work or at home and your family, wherever, if you think somebody is being abused in some way or you notice a big change in them, the thing to do there is to proceed with great love and gentleness and just say to the person in a quiet moment, you know what, something doesn't quite seem right at work, at home, wherever you think this is happening. And I need you to know that I love you and I'm here for you and that you can trust me. And then just wait for them 
to confide in you then, the next week, the next month, or the next year. You don't want to force this kind of confession. You want to let them know that you see that something's changed and something's wrong and that you are a trustworthy person. Great advice. Let's jump to your current book, a little bit different stage of life for you, certainly, and different kind of memoir. So tell us a little bit about that. Okay. So the memoir is called The Naked Truth. And to bring you up to speed, kind of fast forward, after my abusive marriage ended, I remarried my second husband who was really stable and steady and everything I wanted and needed at the time. And we had three great kids together. And in many ways, he was an ideal husband. And there are a lot of women out there who would want to be with him. But I eventually outgrew him because I needed a lot more emotional connection. It was kind of like I needed the one thing he couldn't give. And in some ways, he was very neglectful of me emotionally, not intentionally and not in a cruel way, but just because he couldn't meet me on that level. So I got divorced for the second time at 49. And I'd had two marriages. Frankly, by the end of it, they'd felt like prison cells. And so I never wanted to be with a man again. And just given how outspoken I am, I told everybody that. I'm never dating again. I'm never getting married again. I'm never having sex again. And to my shock and delight, about a year after I got divorced, I met a wonderful guy. The details are hilarious. I met him in an airport. He worked in, I'm not kidding, drilling and blasting. He was 20 years younger. He was the most handsome man I had ever stumbled across in my travels. And we ended up having a wild and salacious affair. And it just fixed up everything <laughs> that I thought I had lost. <laughs> I'd lost all my sexual self-esteem at the end of the marriage. And as a, a woman about to turn 50, I got a lot of messages from society that I was not desirable. The statistics on older women and sex are horrific. 30% of women in their 50s have not had sex in the last year. 50% of women in their 60s have not had sex in the last year. And this despite the fact that older women, we feel more comfortable in our own skin and we have more intense orgasm. So that man, single-handedly, it reintroduced me to sex and my own sensuality and sexuality. And although um, that relationship didn't continue, he just awakened me. And I, I really realized that I couldn't recover from divorce and the, the problems with my self-confidence on a diet of you know, self-help and yoga, that I actually needed men and I needed a lot of them. And the feminist in me hated to admit this, but it was really true. And so I and my best friend came up with this plan that we called the five boyfriend plan. I went out and I set out to have five boyfriends in a year. I didn't want a relationship. I wasn't ready for that. I was too fragile and kind of screwed up for that. But I went out and I found five great men. And I actually found a lot more than five. But the way it works with this kind of crazy plan is that sometimes you have one and sometimes you have six and sometimes you have 10 in the queue. And it was just this wonderful adventure of re-exploring my sexuality at this older age. And it shocked me. Every man was younger. A lot of them were much younger. And every one of them gave me something fantastic. They brought me back to myself because The Naked Truth is not a story about finding your soulmate. I didn't find my soulmate. At the end of The Naked Truth, I'm alone again. But what it showed me, such a cliche, but it's so true, is that the most important soulmate, the only one that matters is you. And I found her again through those men, which is so anti-feminist in some ways, but also I think it's a really feminist message too, because it was so, I felt so empowered and powerful because of what happened to me. Well, and I think it's interesting when you talk about feminism and, you know, relationship with men, because certainly in the workplace, 
you know, there's a big struggle right now that the good ones are afraid, right? And, you know, want to be allies. And how do you know? I mean, I think what, what happens when a pendulum swings and it needed to swing, but sometimes it goes, woo, goes way far before it kind of comes back. And like, what is this new normal? I'd love for you to sort of talk about this self-confidence issue because the confidence gap for women is just pervasive. And certainly every interview that I do, there's always in that story, in that path, there's always this, you know, overcoming the self-esteem and that confidence, whether it's in your personal life or in your professional life or whatever that may be. So, you know, when you started really discovering this and yourself saying, what are some of those things that really help you? And again, I think you can apply them to any situation that you're in. Help you just own your power. Well, first of all, I just want to acknowledge and kind of underscore with a, like a big black Sharpie, what you just said, because it's true that the self-confidence gap, it's what gets most women. And it's the biggest problem that I hear about and see in other women and frankly, in myself. And just take physical appearance alone. There's data that shows that men, when they look in the mirror, they like stand up tall and they suck in their gut and they kind of see themselves as they were at 24. Um, <laughs> and we women, we do the opposite. We have this intense body dysmorphia probably brought on by millions of advertisements and Sports Illustrated photos and Victoria's Secret ads that we've seen over the years where we see the worst part of ourselves. We see the cellulite and the saggy whatever and the parts we don't like. And although I'm just talking about physicality here, I think the key is in every way is to try to see yourself, to learn a little bit from men and see yourself as they do themselves. Look at the most positive things. Look at all the things that are great about you. And this is simple, but it's so hard because you got to realize we're going up against everything in our culture that since we were little girls has told us that even if you had a feminist mom like I did, you still get so many messages that you're not enough. Little things like there are no statues of women. There are very few superheroes that are women. And so you start to really question yourself and almost gaslight yourself. So this confidence is really important. And how did I get it? I don't know. I think that a lot of it started with my mom who told me again and again that I could do anything I wanted. I have something inside me that believes in myself and that is really gritty and persistent, stubborn. And when I got divorced at 49, you know, I heard from everybody, including many of my best friends, was that there were no good men out there and that the best I could hope for was to remarry somebody just like the man who I had just ditched, but older and probably not as nice and not as anything. And I just knew they were wrong somehow. I knew they were all wrong. And I said, to hell with all that. And I was lucky that I had that first man and then all the subsequent men who showed me how right I was. And you know what, Melinda, I don't have a magic bullet for how you get there. I just, and what I'm trying to say with the naked truth is just, I'm trying to wave this flag saying, don't believe anything that you've ever heard about women. It's all wrong. Listen to yourself and listen to your other role models. I probably have 20 best friends and they're all my role models because of the success they've had in relationships, in their careers, in whatever it is that they've set out to do. Surround yourself with great women like that. That's the biggest key. It is interesting because, of course, I sort of chuckled when earlier this year a research study came out that, of course, something I've known for a really long time, as I'm sure you had, that basically now you know, proves that women who are in these leadership and high positions in their careers universally have one thing in common. They all have a tribe of women that have had their back and helped them. And it's like this newsflash, like, oh, wow. And I've been preaching that for so long. You know, I always like find your tribe. And actually you talk about that in your TED talk, a little bit about, you know, this tribe and, and surrounding yourself and crediting those people with helping you get out of that situation. And it sounds like that's carried on. 
again, let's underscore this with a black Sharpie again. This is it. Everything in life is a tribe of women. And my advice to a five-year-old, a 15-year-old, a 25-year-old, a 35-year-old, find those women and hold on for dear life because they're what have seen me through everything. My first book, Mommy Wars, was about working in stay-at-home moms. By the end of that book, I say, you can't get through motherhood without the sisterhood of other moms. And it doesn't make any difference whether they work or stay at home. From motherhood to relationships, to raising kids, to divorce, to dating, probably to death, although I haven't faced that yet myself, it's all about the women we surround ourselves with. And there is a sisterhood. Now, women can be really hard on each other and there is lots of cattiness out there, but there are also so many wonderful women and find them, be one, hold on to them because I'm really, I'm not being hyperbolic here. I would not be alive without the other women in my life. The Naked Truth is dedicated to the men who made me scream and the women who let me cry because there were so many of them. There have been so many of them and that's what you need. And men are so wonderful. It's like Cher says, men are wonderful, but they're like dessert. They're not the main course. And I think that women are the main course and women are the only true romance of my life, starting with my mom and then moving on to my sisters and all of the best friends I've had over the years and women like you. And that's why this podcast is so important. That's why this message is so important is that we women do need to come together and help each other. It's the only solution. The reason Me Too has been successful and it's the reason that we're going to be successful in the future, not just we women, but our society overall. I believe that as well. So as we wrap up, what's next for you? (laughs) Well, I'll tell you, you're not going to ask this because you're such a a woke woman yourself, but I will tell you the question that every single other person asks. They say, so are you single now? (laughs) And this is a really revealing question because first of all, it's a completely fair question. I understand why they're writing it. I, I just wrote a book about my sexuality and dating, you know, after 50. But the reason that it's really revealing is that our culture still thinks that the only legitimate happy ending for women is to get married and live happily ever after. And mm-hmm. I just want to say, I am- I'm, I'm more not just... about a commune of women's off somewhere. I don't know. <laughs> exactly, exactly. But you're not going to read that in any fairy tale. You're not going to see that on the big screen on Disney, but it's the truth. And I'm a joyously single woman and I'm writing a sequel to The Naked Truth Men continue to give me the most unbelievable material. And I am, you know, still, I'd say at least once a week, I'm calling my girlfriends and crying because that's what life is like as a really passionate woman who is out there living her life. And there's no fairy tale ending. There's no Prince Charming. The whole mythology of Prince Charming is unfair, not only to women, it's really destructive to women, but it's unfair to men. And you've got to be your own fairy godmother if you want to be happy in this life. And so that's what you're doing. It's what I'm doing. It's what I would advise any woman to do is go be your own fairy godmother. Grant yourself your own wishes and get out there and live your life. It's the only life we have. And I love being a woman so much. I've never once wanted to be a man. And despite its challenges, it's pretty awesome to be a woman and to connect with other women and to get everything that we possibly can out of being female and living this life. You guys heard it here first. Be your own fairy godmother. Grant your own wishes. I love it. I love it. Okay, so tell everybody where they can find you and find your book. Well, I have a website, Leslie Books. And that's my handle on Twitter and Instagram. Come find me. I still have Leslie Morgan Steiner, my crazy love publication name for LinkedIn and Facebook. But just come find me. And you can get the book anywhere. You can get it at your independent bookstore. You can get it at Amazon or Barnes and Noble. And I want to say too that on my website, Leslie Books, my real email is there. And I check it a million times a day. And I love to hear from readers. For me, writing books like this 
really candid, open books is all about connecting with other people. And I love to hear from readers. So please shoot me an email and let's have a a conversation together. Let's continue this conversation one-on-one. Well, thank you so much. It was really fun and we wish you all the best. And I can't wait for the sequel. Thank you very much. Thanks, Leslie. All right, take care. Bye-bye. Looking for more inspiration, advice, and direction? Subscribe to our free daily email newsletter and podcast, Four Minutes with On The Dot, where we provide you with the tools and motivation you need to get out there and be the badass you are meant to be. Tune in next week where I sit down with Deborah Lee James, the former Secretary of the Air Force. We're focused on your success, so let us know what you think by chatting with us at On The Dot Woman on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. We'd love to hear your voice. 